Hello and welcome to the Music Survival Guide, the independent musician's guide on how to survive in the music industry. My name is Joe Sage, I'm a producer and mix engineer, and I'm the host of this podcast, as well as... Me? Phil! Hey! <laughs> I'm a, uh, uh, my name's Phil Salter, I'm a mixing engineer. Hello! Hey Phil, how you doing? I'm, I'm great, how are you? <laughs> I'm, Enjoying the wet I'm, weather still? Yeah, I think my girlfriend said the other day, she said, oh, it's the first day of spring. And I think it lasted all of about seven minutes <laughs> when the <rain> came. <laughs> before. Yeah, it started looking like Mordor once again. Mordor's not flooded. It's very hot and dry. Yeah, Mordor and the Mersey. That's. Uh... <laughs> so what are we talking about this week, mate? So this week we are talking about um, efficient gigging is probably the best phrase I can put. So you're in a band, say and you want to do a gig and you're going to typically most gig lineups have three or four bands maybe and you need to set up and you need to pack down fast like if you if you ever been to a gig and you've watched like in a pub gig and you've watched people set up and back down it needs to be as efficient and speedy as possible that is absolutely key and could make or break you being reinvited to a gig or not so i guess we're talking this week about how you can go about that and what things you could do. That's a massive thing, getting reinvited. It's not necessarily about kind of getting the first gigs. It's kind of getting repeat bookings and getting referrals is a really great way of snowballing your gigs and kind of getting yourself out there a little bit more. So in my notes, I've kind of split it up into two categories. I've kind of gone the prep. So I think this is all things to do with rehearsals and beforehand and the actual gig itself. Um, the real deal. The real deal. So I'm just going to kind of fire off a point and see what your opinion is on it, Phil. So my first one is communication with the headline slash promoter and what they need from you. Oh, yes. That is surely the place to start. So if, for example, um, you're going to a, a gig and the headline band all use campers and they're all going direct and you're expecting them to have a cab that you might be able to use. And if you come and you haven't brought a cab and they've, they've all got campers or whatever, you're, you're in trouble. You're in trouble fast. So it's, it's things like that that you really need to, you know, if you haven't got a bat dialed in, you're going to have a bad time. One massive element is that there's sometimes a lot of guesswork with new bands. They try and guess, oh, we need to do this, that and the other. The easiest way to cut it out is to just kind of ask people. Communication is really, really important. So speak to the headliner and say, what would you like us to bring? What do we need to bring? Other things I've got is, how long do you want our set to be? Oh, yes. You know, is there backdrop or lighting? Some bands have banners. The headliner might have a banner and therefore doesn't want your banner in front of it. It's all these kind of things that you need to kind of get out of the way beforehand and talk to people about. Yes. I mean, for example, if you've planned to do a 30-minute set and it turns out your set is 15 minutes and you're there two minutes before you start desperately crossing out songs and trying to work out a timer for it, that, that is not, you're not going to have fun. Um, and ultimately, if you're not having fun at a gig, probably no one else watching you is going to have fun. So planning ahead on essential things like that and really knowing what you're going to do is great. Yeah, that, that stress and improvisation in the moment i don't think is conducive to having a good show no i know from experience when when i used to do some session based stuff that 
the best gigs I had were ones where I knew second by second how the day and the gig and everything else in between would go because I felt mm. really relaxed and I could be in the moment. If you're kind of trying to think on your feet and going, oh, bugger, right, we need to do this, that and the other. It's, uh, yeah, it's panic stations. <laughs> it's not a good time. Um, so part of that is plan out as a band, work out different set lengths. So have a 15-minute set, have a 30-minute set, have a 45-minute set, just have lots of different sets so that if you get a real last-minute gig that it turns out is a, you know is whatever length it is, you're prepared. You don't need to sit there and work out which songs you're going to choose. And obviously you can, you can vary these up as you go along, but having that planning ahead of working out different set lengths and what you could, what you could do with each one is a, a great place to be. That's a really good point, having a contingency for everything. Okay, so... Let me phrase this uh, as a question. So, Phil, uh, I'm in a band and I'm asking you for some advice. Mm-hmm. And we come to you and we say, we want to be really prepared for any last minute gigs. What would be the things that we need to make sure that we know and have lined up in case we get a last minute gig that could be, say, in four hours time or something? Four hours time. Well, that really isn't very long. Um as I say, have different set lengths prepared. So you, you don't need to have that conversation. I've seen bands five minutes before they go up literally working out which songs they're going to play. And I saw them not enjoy it. So that that is a really essential thing. Um, making sure your rig, whatever, whatever you, in uh, whatever, making sure your rig, whichever musician you are, so your guitar amp and your pedals and guitar and things, or your, your drum kit, or whatever, whatever it is, making sure that is dialed in, in whatever way that means for you. Um, so you're not there tweaking and, and messing about with things as you're about to start. Um, just know what kind of tone you're going to do. It's, it's just a great place to be. So then you're not um, desperately trying to sort that all out. Have, I mean, there's lots of extra little things I could suggest to you as well, like have spare sets of strings so you don't need to rush out to the shop when you found out you've got four hours to a gig let's hope it's a local gig <laughs> just things like that just having your your set prepared but then having also your equipment prepared and ready to to be taken wherever so on that thing you were saying there about having equipment prepared i think a really good thing to have is a tech rider that you've kind of got saved to your phone or like a google drive that you can send to any venue and kind of mm. immediately kind of go, yep, this is what we need. This is what we've got. Again, it's kind of that whole thing of communication and someone who should hopefully know what they're doing can take one look at that tech rider and go, okay, cool. Yeah. You need to bring this, that and the other, and then you're great. Mm. I think a lot of, I'm going to say this comment and I'm going to, I'm going to probably slightly regret it. A lot of guitarists, <laughs> very specifically guitarists, spend a long time honing their tone, which is, you know, it's very important. You've got to sound the way you want to sound. But for a lot of guitarists, that can involve a really complicated setup. And I would suggest to you, whoever you are, um, that the more stuff you have in your rig, the more stuff there is to go wrong especially mm. when you're setting it up very quickly. If you're trying to plug into maybe a couple of amps and you've got a massive pedal board, you're going to have a really hard time compared to someone who maybe has three or four pedals and an amp. You, you, there's just more to go wrong, and that's not going to help you. 
I did see someone once play to a pub of about three people with a wet dry wet rig. Excellent. <laughs> so, there were there were more amps than there were people. That is wow. That's quite a choice. On, on that point you were saying there though, having a pedal board is I think oh, yeah. imperative. You'd be surprised at the, the amount of bands that don't. Bass players, I think, are especially guilty. Now we've dubbed in guitarists, let's dub in bass players as well. <laughs> Where, you know, they're, they're fumbling around with a plug-in in the wall power supply looking for something, and then they're kind of like assembling their pedal board on the, on the stage. As it's go- it, one, it's a pain in the backside to do. Then it's, it also doesn't look great, if I'm entirely <laughs> honest. If you're trying to come across as professional, seeing scrabbling round, which I've seen a Tesco bag for life full of pedals before. <gasps> Amazing. That is it's, wonderful. <laughs> it's it's not the best look. It's really not the best look. Here's my controversial suggestion. People mm. so stringed instruments, I'm gonna, you know, throw guitars and basses in together. This is kind of my wheelhouse. Guitar bands, for want of a better phrase. Um love people love amps. And people love the sort of, you know, the, the tube amps and the things like that. Now, I would suggest to you that the important thing in your live tone isn't about having it sounding perfect and exactly the same as your recorded tone, where you can spend time using lots of different amps and blending things together, etc. It's about having a almost a good enough tone. And I don't mean don't spend time on it, but it doesn't have to sound exactly the same because live sound ultimately gets quite mushy really um if you could use something like a helix uh is it line six helix things like mm-hmm. that direct boxes where all you need to do to go to front of house is plug in an xlr cable that is probably the quickest and most efficient method of um playing guitar live and if you're you know if you happen to have a cab on stage you can buy small power amps you could do something like that so that you've got that contingency where you've got a cab available you can still use it now that that might be hard for some to hear but ultimately that might be the easiest and best way for you to gig a good example of that is when i used to do some session bass work in the studio i had a very very complex rig so it would kind of be going through, you know, a uh, vintage Ampeg and through 1176 compressors if you're into your gear. Beautiful. All those thing. kinds of, yeah, all those kind of things. But when it comes to playing live, especially when it comes to doing session stuff, being efficient and avoiding the, the bag full of cables and paddles is really important because you're part of the image of that mm. band. So when I did those gigs... I kind of foregone all the expensive paddles and all those kind of things. And I just basically went, yeah, okay, right. I'm going to have this big solid state. When I say big, as in big power, but it was a TC electronic lightweight thing that I could throw in my rucksack along with my tiny pedal board, which had a tuner compressor and a sans amp on it. And it just meant that I could run, even if I didn't have to use the TC electronic, I could just use my sans amp, run it straight to the front of house, and then it was a case of, you know, pass me an XLR, boop, I'm done. That's my sound check. Sorted. There. Yeah. And I'd, I'd suggest that if you spend time with that stuff, you can actually make it sound really good. It's not, oh, yeah, don't get me wrong. It sounded yeah. great. But I, I, it's hard live, especially as well if you're, not, if you're not doing big gigs and you haven't got a amazing 
live sound engineer, or that's that's maybe harsh, someone who hasn't got time to kind of sit with you and work on your live sound, because they're often, you know, you've got two minute sound checks mm. and you have to have to go. It's almost a bit of a false economy to spend a lot of money on your live rig. You just kind of want something that gets you there and yeah. is maybe the right volume. Especially, you know, if you, you'll know about this with marshals and stuff like that, where you really need to crank them to get in their sweet spot. They're useless if you're playing a pub gig. 100%. 100%. I can't agree with you more. So there was this one gig, and I'm, I'm going to name one of the bands because they did something right, so I can, I can be nice. There was, there was one gig, or there were several bands at this lineup, right? And one of them had this, I think it was a 100-watt marshal. And it sounded all right. But the best band of the night is a band called Trouble County, right? It's a three-piece band. And the guitarist uses a six-watt amp. And it just meant that he could really crank it, got the, got the gosh, we're going into nerdy talk here, got the power amp distortion involved. And then, you know, the mic was there and it just got turned up to the right volume. And it sounded brilliant. So you, you don't need these massive, massive amps necessarily. You can get away with something smaller. Mm. And I think that also leads quite nicely into monitoring. We were talking about stage volumes. That's another thing you kind of need to communicate about. Are you running backing tracks? Are you going to need a click in your ear? Are you, say, for example, when I was talking about doing my bass playing just through a sans amp, will you need a wedge? Do you want to kind of just go directly through in-ear monitoring? There's loads of these things that you will turn a live sound engineer green in the face if you just turn up and go yeah yeah we need it basically a more complicated rig than u2's last arena tour but you've got 30 seconds to sort it out yeah you've got you've got to communicate that if it's almost like i was going to say a wedgeless gig i don't think you really get those anymore but if you if you don't have much in the way of a fallback monitor or if there's one fallback monitor mix you've got to share amongst everyone then you might have to think and definitely communicate, but think about, you know, do I need a cab? You know, is running direct necessarily the best way? If you go in knowing the kind of things you're going to see at this gig and the kind of equipment you're going to use, then you're away. Yeah, there's a there's also another element of trying not to overcomplicate things. So if you are at kind of like a smaller level, take into consideration if you have got a live sound guy that would be comfortable with doing monitors and in-ears because as i'm sure many people are aware the the bigger gigs you do you might have a separate monitor or in-ear guy so if you've only got one it might be a bit much mm. and not only that you're also relying on them to kind of do two jobs well at once i've been in a situation where we did do a gig where it was all in him it was a wedgeless stage as you put earlier and there is nothing more terrifying than your in-ear monitors going down on a yeah. wedgeless stage when there was no stage volume as well, apart from the drums. Uh, so we're just all looking at each other, not able to hear anything apart from drums. That sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, we were well rehearsed enough that we kind of managed to make it through the song. You got and it actually sounded okay because the PA was fine. Okay. You just so, take a, take an ear out and then just try. And no, because you can't you can't hear the anything oh, else just, apart from drums because the PA is out in oh, front. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, it was very weird. I wouldn't recommend that as an experience. That's don't do that, kids. That's safe to say. On the on the 
tone front. Um, it's just a great little thing. Um, I went to this pub gig in Croydon, uh, mid-December, I think it was. And there were several bands on this bill. Right. And because I'm a bassist, I pay attention to the bass gear and I'm like, that's really nice. So there was a, there was a guy, there was a guy there who I'm going to name it had an orange, is it a, uh, 200B? Like their big 200 watt tube amp. Oh, the bass, the bass tower. No, no, no. They got, they got this even bigger one. That's like a 200 watt all tube size of a guitar amp style thing. Right. Okay. It sounded awful. (laughs) <laughs> he could not turn it up. He could not turn it up. And then the the other band who were on this gig had a the bassist had a solid state thing, um, and he kind of I talked to him about it. He doesn't really care what he uses, um, and it kind of it sounded about the same. If I'm honest, like with especially with bass, I think more so than any other instrument. Actually, I've, I'm qualified to talk about this as a bassist. Um, <laughs> when you're at a live gig, if you've got you know lots of slight variance in your tone it's probably just going to come out of the front the front of house as just a big blob of low end so mm. you can't overcomplicate these things i guess that's what we're saying another nightmare that i've i've experienced where i've turned up and i mean i think this is when i was maybe 18 kind of first started getting into playing live and doing session bits was the guy said you know yeah turn up the bass amps provided it was a neo soul kind of jazz gig, and and the amp was a bass terror by <laughs> Orange. <laughs> wow! So I kind of needed this really chilled back, almost upright bass sounding thing, mm. and I sounded like sounded like a chainsaw in the background, <laughs> just because the thing would not go loud and not sound like it's trying to tear your head off. Lesson, lesson learned. Communication. Mm. <laughs> you do, I'm not, I, I don't feel like that was my fault but no, I feel true. like that's the band leader's fault for not knowing bass amps wow, that's true um, I think uh, an important member of a, of a quote unquote normal band that we haven't talked about is the drummer mm-hmm. so of any um, band member the drummer has the most to do to set up to get ready and usually the drummer has the most um different kind of custom bits of their their drum set up to to breakables breakables yes that's the phrase and it always seems to be to my from what i've seen the snare drum all the cymbals and sometimes the kick um the kick pedal especially if they're using double kick so joe you're you're in some indie rock band right you're an indie rock band and you're a drummer Uh uh-huh and you've got this gig coming up in four hours. It's a aforementioned gig. How do you prepare and how do you set up as quickly as possible but doing a good job? Okay. As part of my preparation, I've taught the other band members how to disassemble and assemble my kit. So, you know, assuming they do what we've mentioned before and they've kind of got a neat compact pedal board that they just need to plug into and do a quick sound check, they can help me with setting up packing down another large element to it is having a conversation with the venue seeing what stuff they've got what the headliner has got seeing what i need to bring what i don't need to bring i'd have say a very versatile snare that tends to be pretty much your first thing Mm. so i would kind of go for and this is me being a 
you know, gear nerd again, I'd kind of go for like a 60s or 70s Ludwig Supra. Those stuff sound great in pretty much any situation. Beastie. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't think you'll find, well, I have one and I've never found a drummer that's turned it down in a recording session. So that's really all that needs to be Lesson said. learned. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and then apart from that, I think it's a case of just making sure that everyone knows their jobs and can help me mm. with uh, setting up and packing down. I, obviously, there's, there's an element to it where there needs to be small tweaks because they won't be able to get it exactly in the right place. But it's with things like um, just putting stuff in cases or especially breaking down. If you have three or four people doing it, especially the singer, if they've not got anything else to do, it can make a massive difference. Yep. Make a massive difference. If you've got someone who, who their only role in the band is to sing, then their setup time is pretty limited. Um, mm. They might, I emphasize, might have their own microphone if they brought it. Otherwise, they just sort of get to turn up and sing. So, especially the singer, but everyone else too, getting them to help with the drum kit, but then everyone else's bits and pieces, really having, I guess, yeah, a game plan of how are you going to put all this up um, is going to help you get, do it so quickly and just, just get, get you playing quicker as well. The other thing I'd say about um, drummers is, especially for metal music, where I've, I go to gigs, a lot of metal gigs, is think about how complicated a drum setup you need <laughs> so not dream theater not dream theater so you could turn up and have your six or seven toms and your 20 cymbals but do you actually need it i mean realistically could you get away with using two toms like you know a rack and a floor could you get away with two crashes or maybe even one instead of your seven or eight or what you know whatever your drum setup is i mean that's that's going a bit crazy but realistically you're going to set up quicker if you have less bits of your drum kit yeah i've been to gigs where they've seen say been in all right sized venues and they've been the support act and the drummers had maybe five or six cymbals and you can t i have had a conversation with them afterwards where they've really they were talking about their cymbal selection during songs and the, how they're gonna like work these certain fills if I'm honest, if I closed my eyes, I couldn't tell you which symbol was which. <laughs> they all kind of sounded the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's, again, similar to kind of having a stupidly expensive uh, guitar amp. There's, there's, a, there's a threshold from where it sounds good, and then everything past that is a bit of a false economy. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm sure Joe would be the first to iterate this, but when it comes to thresholds, there is a slightly different rule set when it comes to recording. I would suggest. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I know, but I, it's, it's I, just I worth back, pointing yeah. that out. I yeah, like. I take back everything. It's the complete <laughs> opposite when it comes to recording. Yeah. Like, great cymbal sounds are one of the most underrated parts of recording. <laughs> and it's the hardest it, it, thing to mix, like bad cymbals. Yeah, bad cymbals them. instantly ruin a recording. Yes. A bad snare you can kind of ish work with. But of all, yeah, of all the worst, it's out of tune guitars, then bad cymbals. Oh, yes. Those are the... Those are the two worst ones, but I'm, <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting sidetracked. Uh, yeah, less said about that, the better. Um, so I'll pose another question to you, Phil. It's uh, it's the gig. It's the night of the gig. Ooh. We've set up. We've done everything correctly. Um, we're playing in a band together. Mm -hmm. As we're about we to go on. Two bases. Yeah, go on. it's going to be a really weird band. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wet, dry, wet setup. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, 
is what are the things to keep in mind whilst we're actually playing the gig that will avoid uh, a stage nightmare? Whilst we're playing the gig? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is knowing which songs you're going to play. Mm -hmm. Like printing out or writing out a set list, even if it's the same 15-minute set list that you do at all your 15-minute gigs, say. Having it written down is very helpful because then... You know, you, you can't have one band member turning to the other going, should we do this song or which song is next? Because I've, I've seen that happen. And it, it sort of draws the energy out of the, the gig, if I'm honest. Um, that would be my first point, having that. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's, that's almost prepping ahead. But having it there is a great idea. So, Joe, what would, you, what would you advise? What would you suggest in this mythical band that we have? So one thing I'd recommend is kind of having a digital clock or a stopwatch to make sure you don't go over stage time limits. That is massive. Oh, yes. um, second one is practicing your patter between songs. As naff as it sounds, the only thing naffer is, if that's a word, is really, really awkward bits of stand-up between songs and it's just, or just song transitions in general. There's some, it's sometimes really, really awkward if you can't hear what's being said. That's so you know, you're just talking, they sound like a really bad wedding DJ, yeah. Or you end up in a situation where they start talking, and then a minute and a half later, it's just ugh, they've, they've dug themselves a hole, they've insulted the bar staff, or they've said like an inappropriate joke in the heat of the moment. Ooh. You've got the sound of someone tuning a guitar in the background, <laughs> it's Oh, it, yeah. It ding, ding, brings, ding, ding. <laughs> and finally, kind of on the subject of having a stopwatch is, and it sounds really daft, but putting everything on flight mode is really, really important. And I have the ultimate stage nightmare anecdote that I kind of want to share now that it has to do with a flight mode. So... It was about four years ago. I was doing a showdown in London. I was playing bass for the headline act. It was quite a big club show. There was like mm -hmm. a few hundred people. The support act was on and he was running in-ear monitors and had a laptop with, um, with his backing tracks on. I think he was running Ableton. Um, but because he didn't switch it onto flight mode, I was sitting in the green room and again, very, very loud gig. We could hear everything on stage. He sounded like he was doing really well. He was killing it. And then all of a sudden, all you heard was the music cut and... Wow. Someone had FaceTimed him halfway through his set. Wow. And the thing was, in a clear panic, he'd accidentally answered it. <laughs> Obviously. So all you could hear was, hello, uh, hello, hello. I it took on I'll be honest, it took me a while to click on what had actually happened. <laughs> I thought it must be part of what part of the show, and then it, the music was just going to kind of like kick back in with like a drum break. <laughs> but no, he that would be too cool. Him. <laughs> and then we were on after him, so I'll be honest, you know, bless him. It, it was it was really funny though. I couldn't I couldn't not laugh. Obviously, I didn't do it in front of him. I've, I've never seen anything like that. It, it, I, yeah, it was a one of a kind situation. Um, incredible. We were stood side of the stage 
during his final song, ready to kind of go on. And the lo- <laughs> he had still like 10 minutes left of his set, but you could just tell at that point he just wanted to go. Like the energy was just so weird in the room. It was oh, <laughs> it, awkward. Oh, awkward. Yeah, awkward. I'd say nothing can top that for a stage nightmare, really. So that's why I, I thoroughly recommend putting all your devices in flight mode. <laughs> or else. Um, another thing I want to suggest, um, and this is slightly off topic, but it's sort of about patter, is especially when you are lower down in the 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 rankings in the in the gig and you're earlier on say who you are and say how people can discover you because mm. there's there's nothing more awkward or just annoying than going this band's incredible but i don't know what they're called because maybe there's not a banner and it's a pub gig and they've just not said who they are or maybe what their instagram handlers or their facebook handlers it's such a simple thing but it will gain you more followers and it will gain you more on the social media um, stakes, which is really important nowadays. Yeah. And again, with what we were saying before is be clear and concise with that. Mm. Don't go into like, you know, an opening five minutes of stand up and then kind of tag that on at the end. Yeah. You, you want to avoid a <laughs> moment. It's quite, it's quite daunting talking into a mic. Yeah, try and try and be brave and try and speak clearly and concisely. Clear and concise. Yes. Um, and maybe just even like promote what you've got coming up next. Mm. Maybe not a gig. I'm not sure. What, I I don't know about the ethics of that. What if it's a gig at the same venue? Maybe. I don't know. I think that's that's a case by case basis. But yeah. um, also thank the headline band as well. If you're not the headline band, it's massive. Yeah. It'll gain you credibility with people yeah. who were there for the headline band. Essentially, yeah, you're... If you're a support band, you're the hype band, really. You're the hype man. It's like your job is to get people warmed up for the big one. Hmm. Joe. Hello. Can I ask a slightly left-of-field question? Of course. If you were a, a popular pop artist and mm-hmm. you want to gig, but you, mm-hmm. you, you sort of don't know where to start because maybe you don't think your music translates live... But you mm-hmm. think, well, this is going to gain me followers and it will be a fun thing to do. How would you go about it? What would you do? Okay, so you can take two approaches from it. And one is you can try and do a different instrumentation to make it more live, whether that be acoustic or kind of stripping it down or maybe making it more rocky. It's probably a bad... Right, more <laughs> acu- Yeah, when I say acoustic, I also kind of mean acoustic instruments, whether that be drums or guitars. Or the other option is you play to backing tracks. And I went slightly at saying that because it's a bit of a it's a bit of a taboo playing to backing tracks, but it's better than not doing any gigs at all. And say if you're a singer-songwriter, you could have the backing track and then you play guitar and sing over the top of it. Again, I'd probably recommend having a more stripped back production. Mm. Um just because it can be, I don't know. There, there's something about going to see someone basically do karaoke that feels a bit weird. <laughs> but if you feel if you feel like you're getting a different experience, which is what people want live from the recorded thing, then yeah, there's a lot of merit in that. Mm. How I'd go about that because I've had a lot of people ask me this is it's a conversation to have with your mix engineer or producer. So what you typically would do 
is you would have uh, your mix with all the things you want taken out. So say if I'm a artist that's kind of, you know, electroacoustic thing, and I would take out my acoustic and my lead vocals, maybe the backing vocals as well, because that might feel a bit weird. Um, a bit artificial. Yeah, I would then pan all of that to one side. Then I'd put a click track that would act as my intro all to the other side. So then I'd have a stereo stem where one's on one side, one's, mm. you know, music's on one side, clicks on the other side. I can give that to the live sound guy, whoever's running, running desk. He feeds the click into my in-ear monitors. So only I'm hearing the click and say a bit of the backing track. And then he can play the mono backing track through the PA Boom. so that everyone else hears that in combination with, say, my guitar or, or my vocals and... You can run that for a variety of things. So I know three-piece bands that kind of have these huge synth productions. So they play as a three-piece, but then they'll have, you know, 17 synths or whatever they're technically playing to a backing track. Now, I know, I think I know what you're going to say to this, but um, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask for the, the benefit of the listener. Why mono? Why, why a mono backing track? Isn't stereo better? It is, but it means you can't separate the click. Is the best way I can put it. It's almost like a foolproof thing for the sound engineer. That just yeah. goes, one channel is this, one channel is this, and they're together. Yeah. They're going to start at the same time. Yeah, that's the thing. I think you'd have to have some way of syncing up the tracks if you mm. have them as two separate ones. And again, if you're playing shows where you haven't got your own sound guy and it's kind of like a run and gun quick thing, it's going to be difficult to kind of prepare that. Mm. It's just It feels like almost... It's now an industry standard that you can take it to anyone worth their salt and go, hi, yeah, I'm just running. I'm running back in tracks. If you could play their, their mono left and my clicks mono right mm. or my cues are mono right. It's, yeah. And the other thing which people might not realize is that most gigs, especially pub gigs, are in mono. Mm. Like stereo sound at a gig is actually surprisingly rare. Which can mm. be sometimes why things maybe don't sound as distinct as you'd hope. But that is just kind of a fact of where things are at at the moment. So you can find all our contact details in the show notes if you're interested in working with me and Phil in the studio. As we started last week, uh, we have the Music Survival Guide featured artist. Last week it was uh, Liverpool band Sifter with their track Breathe. Which if you are interested, by the way, we've started a playlist called MSG Featured on Spotify if you want to check out all the bands that we feature. This week is a, another four-piece from York this time called Red Yeti. And this is their single which was released at the time of recording this this week um, called Cascade. Uh, like I mentioned, they're an indie four-piece from York. Um, and funnily enough, I had a little bit to do with this. <laughs> I, I was... <laughs> shameless plug uh involved. I, yeah i uh i mix this track for these guys they're they're really really great you can like i said you can check them out on spotify apple music or head over to facebook and find them uh at red yeti york which is all one word so as i mentioned before this is their song cascade so until next week it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him ciao you can be my yambalet, my devoir I'm like a ball constrictor wrapped around your little finger I can be-
la chapa.